0: Today's daf is cafe in Masechet Betzah. We are on Kafay Amud Aleph. We are on the second line from the top of the Amud. Amar Barav Amarav If a person Barav Rav. If you close off a uh, a water a stream of water from before Yom Tov mutarin, and the next morning you wake up and you find that in that water are fish. You're allowed to use them on Yom Tov, reason being, because obviously you trapped them in that section of the water because you closed it off from flowing. You you trapped them in there from before the holiday. We learned from this that if an animal nests, so to speak, has its young in a pardes, in an orchard that's enclosed seemingly, uh, that it doesn't require any kind of a designation for use on Yom Tov If it's settled there before the Yom Tov Because it has little children Children can't exit from there So basically it's trapped in there And it's the same thing as uh, the fish that are trapped in the water uh, Flowing water that's been cut off uh, They're also trapped in there And therefore they're considered to be at your disposal Nachman, said, Our colleague has fallen Among great people In other words he's fallen into an argument He's put his head into a big argument among authorities, as we're going to see what the argument is uh, in the the Gemara we'll explain. But first it's going to give us another version. According to this version, the person who made the statement was not Rav Chizda, but it was Rav B'Rav who who said from these words, um we can conclude, in other words, he was the original source of the statement of Rav about closing off the water. In this version, he is commenting on the statement that he himself gave over, that, that if an animal settles and nests, so to speak, in, a, in an orchard, meaning it has its young in that orchard, it's also at our disposal and we don't need to designate it for Yom Tov Ravta. According to this version, Rav Nachman said, the son of our colleague, meaning Rav Huna's, their colleague, Um, Rav Huna is of the same generation as Rav Chizda. So instead of saying that Rav Rav Huna is their colleague, they said the son of our colleague has gotten into a big machloket. He's entered himself into a big machloket. Why is it a big machloket? Because you can't really compare the uh, case of the closing off of the water to the case of the uh, animal that comes and settles in the orchard because the Uh, the closing off of the water is an action that the person has done, so that is a type of a designation. Whereas if the animal just comes in and nests in there, has its babies in there, whatever, that's not an action done by a person, so that wouldn't be in lieu of uh, a designation. Is it really true that it doesn't require any kind of a designation? We learned explicitly in a Braita that an animal that settles with its young and an orchard does require designation if you want to use it for yom tov food. Also a sparrow that flies freely. You need to tie its wings. So you won't mix it up with its mother. In other words, if you designate a particular bird for use, you want to make sure that you don't mix it up with another one that looks just like it. In that case, the it was possible to mix up the uh, child with the mother so they would tie The wings, so they could tell which one was which. And this is a testimony that was testified in the name of of Av Shemayava Avtalion. That is a refutation of the idea that the wild animal that settles in the Pardes, that settles in the orchard, doesn't require any designation. Here it clearly says it does require it. So not only was Rav Chizda or Rav Rav Barafonan not justified in the inference that they made from the statement of Rav, but actually their inference was contradicted. In other words, we already said that there was a distinction to be made between where an action is done by the person And where the animal just came and settled in the orchard But beyond that, there's actually a clear statement to the contrary That, uh, that you would indeed have to designate those animals Now, is it really true that you need to? Now, this is talking about a case where the uh the person we and this was earlier in the first peric of this Masechet, that basically we're talking about a case where there were two dove and you designated one and not the other, and the next day you found that uh, uh, that there were at the on the front at the front of the of the the um the one that you didn't designate is empty, and the one that you did designate has birds, but they are on sort of like the uh, the, the uh, platform that extends from the dovecote, not inside the dovecote itself. So the question is, is that, are those birds the ones that were inside the dovecote that you designated and they're just standing on the ledge of it uh, and the ones that you didn't designate flew away or did the ones that you designate fly away and these are the ones that were on in the one that you didn't designate and they've now moved over to the ledge Of the one that you did, that you designated, but they themselves were not actually designated. In other words, are the birds that you see on that ledge going in or coming out? So, uh, (laughs) so in that case, we said that in that case, everyone agrees it's Asurin. That, um, that since you found them on that ledge, you're gonna assume the worst, you're gonna assume they're not designated. And when is that true? when we 're talking about doves that live in a dove or doves that live in an attic or the birds that make their nests in different kinds of containers or inside the abandoned buildings or whatever or inside inside buildings you know but the domesticated animals like geese and chickens or the uh, the Herodian, uh doves which are domesticated doves the this or a wild animal that made its nest, so to speak, settled and had its young in an enclosed area, Mutarin they are permitted and they don't require any kind of a designation. They're already designated for your use. Like we saw before, you have to tie the bird's wings so that you don't mix it up with its mother. And the ones that you did tie or that you lifted up to designate them from, uh, uh, from before the... Uh, uh, from before the holiday if these are uh if they 're found in uh, pits or in houses or in cisterns or in caves then they're permitted um, as she says if they 're found everywhere uh that uh in other words that is uh uh you know in in various places around then you can recognize that these are ones that you uh either tied something to them. Tied their wings Or you designated them And they're in one of these places And they're permitted But But if they go up into the trees You can't go get them Because, because then you might go Climb up the tree And uh, pull something else off of the tree On the way up And so therefore You're not allowed to take them down from the tree So if they're anywhere They're in any kind of uh, um, Cisterns, pits, house um, All kinds of different places You're allowed to take them But not from a tree And if somebody else tied the wings of the bird or lifted it up to designate it to designate it from before anywhere you see them asur they are prohibited even during the week rashi says because the first person who tied them or picked them up whatever became the owner of those birds by doing that that was the kinyan that he made in those birds so but the main point that the reason why these this bright is being brought here is to show you that It says clearly that if a chaya, if a wild animal settles and has its young in this enclosed area, you don't need to designate for the purposes of Yom Tov. It's automatically considered at your disposal from the fact that it's stuck in your property. So Gemra says, It depends if you're talking about it or its mother. In other words, if you're talking about the the chaya itself, the wild animal itself, right? If you're talking about the babies, right? So the, the, the babies... Those are the ones that can't move, so they're considered at your disposal. But bima, the mother, right? That's uh, that the mother is able to move and to leave the enclosure, so you can't say that the mother is really uh, is really restricted in her in her movement. Right? So the so the mother, since she's big, she should have to be designated, but the baby wouldn't need to be designated. And maybe when it said that the designation was necessary, it meant for the mother. When, that even though she's attached to her young, she can still run away. So she's not considered designated. But the babies who physically wouldn't be able to escape are considered designated. And so the bride that said that they're considered designated would follow, would be talking about the young, not about the mother. But then the Gemara says, but still, uh, but that's not enough for the mother. In other words, you're saying that the, the baby doesn't require even a designation. The mother just requires a designation. How's the designation enough for a bird? Right she has to be caught you can 't just say that the i 'm sorry, not the bird for the wild animal the wild it 's not enough to simply designate this deer that it belongs to you and you 're going to use it i mean that you 're going to use it for Yom Tov you have to do something to, to 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 solidify that so it says The point is that the uh, that the mother for sure is not going to be designated simply by the fact that uh, she's stuck in your enclosure because she can always escape. And even just a designation is not gonna be enough. Something has to be done to uh, gain control over the wild animal to uh, the deer or whatever it is to show that one is in control of it. But the issue, but the, the, so then why do we have one? So then we can only be talking about the young, actually. So if we're only talking about the young, why should one source say that it needs a designation and one source say, no, it depends. If it's in a, um, if it's in a gina, if it's in a type of a garden area that's right next to the city so that you always have in mind to come take whatever young are in there, you don't need to designate. But if it's in a gina, if it's in a garden or an, or an orchard or whatever, that's further away from the city that you might not have been thinking of, and having in mind to take birds from there for food, only if you designated it specifically is it going to be considered designated. So the mother never, but the designation would never be enough. But for the children, it would depend. If it's something that's implicitly designated because it's close by, you always there thinking about it, then you wouldn't need a special designation. But if it is further away, you would need it. The Mishnah says, and If you have an animal that is in danger, in other words, it's sick, and you're afraid it might die, you want to slaughter it before it dies. You should not slaughter Unless you're going to have time to eat at least a kazait of the meat before the Yom Tov is over, you may not slaughter it. And it has to be a kazait. It has to be one that is roasted. In other words, in order to justify slaughtering this animal, you want, to, you want to slaughter the animal because you don't want it to die and then it's nevelan, you're going to lose the, the money that you're to, because the meat is going to be not kosher anymore. So you want to slaughter it early. So the thing is, if you slaughter it on Yom Tov, you have to have it at least for some food of Yom Tov. It can't just be that you want to slaughter it. So therefore, there has to be at least enough time to eat a kazayit of roasted meat from that animal. Even if you just took a kazayit, an olive's worth of raw meat from the place of the shechita that you've already cleared away to make it um, able to be uh, accessed for the uh, because you, you already cut it by, by slicing it. You already opened it up and you could take the meat from there. Everything, and this, you know, the skin is already detached and all that. So uh, even if it's raw, shechata basade lo uv'mota aval evarim If you slaughter an animal out in the field, You should not bring it on any kind of a uh, stick or with one person or two people carrying the animal because we don't want it to look like a commercial type of activity. It's very conspicuous. Rather, you bring it by your hand, piece by piece. Don't bring the whole animal at once. The Gemara says, Rami Baraba said, That there is skinning and butchering, cutting up into pieces. Uh, with the korbanot, when it talks about the korban olah, which is called achilat gavas, so to speak, Hashem eating, meaning the mizbech eating, so we can learn from that, for how a human being should also eat, right? the katzabim, the same thing is true about butchers. Mikan limda torah derech Torah is teaching you derech iret, teaching you proper manners, so you chaladam, basar kodem yivshev A person really should not eat meat until the meat has been skinned completely and has been chopped up properly. If that's true, Maika Mashmal. And what is it coming to teach us? Maybe you're telling me it's too excluded. Because Rafuna said that an animal, when it, as long as it's alive, is considered to be. It has the presumption of being prohibited because it's a living animal. Until we know that it's been slaughtered properly. And once you slaughter the animal, it, we assume that it's kosher until proven otherwise that there's some kind of a treifa, right? So here we're saying that uh, that um, you have to chop up the animal before you uh, you eat it, and the assumption of the gemara right now is that the reason why you have to chop it up is because. Uh, we want to see if there's any terefot in there. So it's saying you have to first skin it. You have to chop it up. So that's contradicting When I is saying even if you ate it from before you checked anything, before you cut, cut up anything, it's still good. And we're saying that uh, no, you, you have to first chop it up to see if there's any problems. So that's a contradiction to When I says the presumption is that it's good. And we're saying no, you have to butcher it first to see if it's good. But didn't we learn in our own Mishnah just like what Rabbuna is saying. Because look what what, what it says it's not Rabbi Akiva, we see that Rabbi Akiva said that even if you can eat a kazait, raw kazait, from the place of the shechita, from the neck of the animal, the, on Yom Tov, that's enough to justify slaughtering it on Yom Tov. Okay? The point is though, obviously you didn't skin it, you didn't uh, chop it up. So, so uh, obviously, you have is right that you don't need to do that in order to justify saying that the animal is kosher. My love, Betvichata Mamash, isn't the assumption that it means literally that you're allowed to do that. You can go before you've skinned it, before you've butchered it, and you can take meat from the neck of the animal and eat it. So that shows you that you don't need to butcher it, which means that we do assume that there's nothing that needs to be checked out. We give it the presumption of innocence. Gemara says, No, Mimakom Shetovachat Achilata. What it means is, from the place that the animal cuts up its own food, meaning from the innards, after we um, butcher the animal and get to the inner organs, then we can, um, we, we can take meat from there because we've already butchered it. But didn't Rabbi Chia say that, no, Rabbi Akiva speaking literally, that he meant that you can actually take meat from the neck of the animal... So therefore, that cannot be the case. In other words, we see from the case of Rabbi Akiva that you do not have to um, uh, skin and butcher an animal in order to take meat from it because we're not talking about taking meat from the inside of the animal after it's been butchered. We're talking about taking it from the neck of the animal, which is the simple meaning of the Mishnah. And what the Gemara is saying is that therefore you see that there is no... that we, re- we really do follow Rafunam. We really do say that once you slaughtered an animal, the assumption the, is that it's kosher, you don't have to do any more investigation. So why then do we learn... Uh, from Rami, Rami Bar Abba, that, uh, that we should, that it's proper for us to wait until an animal's been skinned and butchered before eating the meat. So, Ela Rami Baraba. rather, Rami Baraba was not telling you halachav trefot, that you have to be worried that the animals are trefot. What he was telling you was, he was just teaching you the proper manners. Like we also learned in Ebrita. Lo yukhaladam shum ubatzal merosho. Because it says the person also should not eat garlic or um, onion from the head of the fruit, uh, from the head of the vegetable. you should eat it from the uh, from the leaves from the top. All right, me'alav meaning from the, uh, the where the the leaves are from the top of the vegetable, not from the part on the uh, from what's called the head of the vegetable. And If he does that, it's called It's called a Glutton, that he would eat that way. It's not the proper way to mm-hmm. eat. Similarly, a person should not drink their entire drink in one shot. And if he does, he's considered uh, again a type of a glutton. The rabbi said if a person drinks their entire cup in one shot, that's considered to be being a pig. If he uh, does it in two, that's proper. And if he does it in three, that's already being aristocratic and stuck up. So it says there are three things that cut the legs off. He says that the Chatsuba, the Chatsuba was a plant that they used to plant on borders because its roots go straight down. So if you plant it on the border between two properties, it goes straight down and everybody will see... Exactly where the property line is divided. So it says that cuts the legs of the wicked. She says that means that it should that um, that it should teach you. you know, it teaches a lesson to the wicked who want to secretly steal the property of their neighbors. That you see that really what is truly what belongs to whom is really truly known ultimately, and you'll be held responsible for it. So you should learn a lesson from the fact that um, this plant goes straight down and divides up the borders between properties that uh, you're going to be held accountable for your violation of the rights of another person. And similarly, it says that the planting of Orla, the fact that you have to wait three years before you partake of the new planting, should cut off the legs of those who are the Katsabin, who are the butchers. Why is it cut off their legs? Because it shows you that you have to have patience. You have to wait for three years to be able to partake of this fruit. So too, the butcher should wait until he has time to skin and to chop up the meat before he uh, starts to sell it or to eat it. And Boale Nidot also, it teaches you a lesson of patience that a, a man doesn't want to wait for his wife to come out of the state of Nida. He's so impatient um, and it should teach you a lesson of patience. Or La teaches us a lesson of patience. Similarly to Musa, the um, the uh, this is a bean that had to be cooked seven times in order for it to be sweet. It was very bitter, and then after seven times it became sweet. So it says, this, teach, this cuts off the legs of Sone Israel," which actually means the Jewish people. Um, even though it literally we say it means the haters of Israel, it really means the Jewish people, because it's a, it's a musag to the Jewish people. Because normally this Tumus bean, after seven times of boiling, finally it turns to be good again. But the Jewish people, even after seven times that they got in trouble with Hashem for doing the wrong thing and were criticized, they still didn't go back. To become good again, and that's what we see in the Pasuk That Ben Yisrael went and continued. This is in Sefer Shuftim to do what's evil in the eyes of Hashem. They served the Baalim, Bet Ashtaroth, Aram, Tidon, Bet Elwe Moab, Bet Ben Amon, Plishtim. These are seven different idolatries that they did Baalim, Ashtarot, Aram, Tidon, Moab, Amon, and Plishtim. Seven, and they abandoned Hashem and they did not serve him. So, uh. What does that mean? from the fact that it says that they didn't serve, that they left the Shem, obviously they didn't serve him. So why does it have to say that that even like this bean, that you, so, that you have to boil it seven times, then you eat it as a dessert. My children did not make me that way. Now, what does that mean? So Rashi uh, says that what it, it means that Hashem, it's, it's saying that even after the Jewish people boiled Hashem, so to speak, meaning they rejected him seven times, he didn't even become to them like the Tormuz bean that then becomes sweet and desirable like a dessert. In other words, they didn't even make him an afterthought. Um, After all that they went through, they didn't, they did not, um, they didn't uh, uh, become, uh, there's a sort of a difference because the first way that Rashi explains it is that even though Hashem punished them seven times, they didn't become better. According to this way of reading it, it means that even after seven times of, uh, seven times of, uh, of them angering Hashem, so to speak, he didn't become desirable to them even then. Unlike the turmusbin, that does become desirable after seven boilings. Okay, there's an interesting also interpretation above when it said that the that the chatzuba, uh, that the plant cuts off the legs of the wicked and so on, that it means that um, it means to say that not just the that they have to learn a lesson from the plant that it goes straight down and divides, but it means that they should realize. That there are, uh, you know, that, that it actually literally does that. In other words, the fact that it creates those boundaries prevents the wicked from taking advantage of, the, uh, of those who are less, uh, you know, who, who are uh, vulnerable. In any case, so there's a lot of interpretations here of how exactly to read some of these drashot. Why, did, why was the Torah given to the Jewish people? Because they're very bold people. They have chutzpah. This is the pasuk that we're going to be reading On Simchat Torah from his, hand, from his right hand He gave them the fiery law These are people that are Deservant of receiving A fiery law Because they are fiery, intense Challenging people They're very obstinate, hard people That The nature of these people is fire, meaning their Minhag, their nature is that they are very difficult people, and if the Torah had not been given to the Jewish people, no nation would have been able to stand up against them. There are three who are Azin, who are difficult, who are bold, who have chutzpah, the Jewish people among the nations, the dog among animals, and the chicken among birds. Some say that that's also true of the goat among the small animals. That it means also the tzlaf, the caper bush among the trees. Rashi says he doesn't know. He doesn't know what is the azut, what is the um, uh, the boldness of the um, of the uh, caper bush. Tosfot says because it makes three different kinds of fruits and it's continually producing fruits. This is what makes. The Kiber was unique and uh, and particularly uh, uh, and particularly um, uh, having chutzpah, so to speak, that it's very persistent. You could say that's what it means. Now, there's an interesting uh, commentary of the uh, of the Marusha here. He says, "What's the problem that the nations of the world wouldn't be able to stand up against the Jewish people if they didn't have the Torah? What is that? What does that even mean? Um, that normally, uh, you know, that, that would seem to be that seem to be a good thing." it's saying that uh hashem gave them the Tawan, it made them weaker in the uh in the eyes of the nations that the uh, uh so that should be a negative thing it doesn't mean that it's uh in a, so the Shah explains it's not saying that Hashem wanted them to be weaker in the eyes of the nations, and therefore He gave them the Torah to weaken them. What it means is, if they hadn't had the Torah to tame their natural boldness and to direct those energies in the proper way in service of Hashem, they would have been impossible. They would have been a group of people that would have overrun everyone and everything around them. Uh, you could say, well, maybe that would be good in a certain sense, but the point is that that's what would have happened if, uh, if they didn't have the toah. The Torah mellowed us out. The Torah disciplined us and guide, and it guides us so that we channel that boldness and that strength of character into something positive. Uh, that's the idea. Now, it says that if they slaughter an animal outside in the field, they shouldn't bring it on like a stick in a big way that's very conspicuous. A blind person should not go out with his step. Nor should the um, should the uh, should the, uh, uh, the, um, uh, the shepherd go out with his bag? Nor should a woman or a man go out uh, carried on a, uh, on a chair, like out of kavod, that they would carry somebody on a chair. All these are things that are done in the weekday. We shouldn't be doing them in the normal weekday manner is the idea. Whether it's the shepherd carrying his stuff, or the uh, blind person carrying his staff, or the person being carried. But didn't Rabbi Yaakov Bar-Aidi send the following? He said there was an elder in our neighborhood. And he used to go out with his glued And it says here on the side that that's, uh, that's the type of a folding chair. In other words, he would go out on his folding chair. And they said if the community needs him to come To give a shiur Or to do whatever is necessary for communal reasons Then you're allowed to bring him uh, In that case Because it's being done You can carry him from his house to the Beit Midrash on that, In that folding chair uh, If he's needed for community uh, purposes um, And uh, and the the rabbis relied upon my statement. In other words, they relied upon uh, they relied upon that. And they, uh said, al This was a person, Achishakya. shakia. They relied upon him, not al divrei. It was al divrei achis shakia. He said, I brought Rafuna out I brought him from these two different places um, that he had to carry him from place to place Why? Because uh, seemingly he was needed to give a shiur in one place and another place I used to move Mor from the sun to the shade and from the shade to the sun In other words, when the sun, I guess, moved during the day they would move him to a different place. The point was he was giving shiurim, so it was a, there was a need. And there they explain the reasoning that if the community needs him, it is permitted. Because he is uh, serving an official function. Amalai, avnachman Nachman, Lachma bar-ada. Nachman said lechama bar-ada. Shaleach Zion, who was the... He uh, was the... Uh, messenger to Israel. He would go back and forth from Israel with uh, message, messages all the time. He said to them, so Rav Nachman said to this Chamabar Ada, who would constantly go to Israel, Kisalak, that time when you go there, Akiv Vizila Sulmadi Sur, go up the, uh, the uh, ladder of Sur, Vizila Gabit Rabbi Yaakov Barid, you go to Rabbi Yaakov Barid, you and ask him the following question, Kisay ma atun bey. What do you hold regarding a person being carried on a chair? On the uh on, on the Yom Tov like this in this manner, uh, the thing was before he managed to get there, Rabbi Yaakov Bar-Aidi had already died. So when he was leaving, he ran to Rabbi Zreika. said to him, since he couldn't ask Rabbi Yaakov he asked Rabbi Zreika, "What's the deal? What do you maintain about carrying people on chairs on the holiday?" We say that it's okay as long as they don't put it on their shoulders when they're carrying the person. As long as they don't place it on their shoulders, um, it would be okay. And so the, uh, What does it mean, the shoulders? What it means is having poles that they place on their shoulders that support the chair um, over the shoulders. Or, as uh, she has here, he has, uh, first he says, um, he says these are seats. In other words, they would cross over their arms. And by crossing over their arms, they would create a kind of a support for the seat to go on it. And that they're not allowed to do. Okay? In other words, that's too complicated, that's too sophisticated. Others means It means a type of a, uh, the way that they do it, they do it with pulls instead of directly Holding the the seat, but Rashi says that it has to do with the way that they're holding their arms across each other to enable the uh, the seat to be uh, supported. So, in either way, meaning doing it in a way that's too elaborate is not allowed. Okay, so then Amra, uh, so is that Rav Shall lali Yalta ki? Didn't Rav Nachman allow his wife Yalta to go out with Alonki, Which either again means some kind of use of poles, or it means like Rashi says having arms crossed of the carriers, so they create a kind of a support under the chair. It says again, Shana Yalta de Ba'ita Yalta was different because she was too afraid to, uh, that there were people standing all over, and she was afraid that, uh, um, it, it, uh, she says that uh, that she was afraid to fall, basically, so they had to hold her in that way that was especially secure. Now, That Ra'am and Morzutwa also had people carry them in the chairs on the Shabbat of the Regal. That was the Shabbat before the holiday where they would have a big, huge shiurim on the upcoming holidays. They would allow them to carry them from the Beit Midrash to the place where they were going. Um, And the reason was because there were so many people standing around them. Uh, because they would, uh, you know, out of honor, but they were afraid that that might cause them to fall out of the seat. Or some people will say because of dohka, uh, that the people were waiting um, uh, for them to get to their final destination. In other words, they were standing and waiting for them. And so therefore they wanted to move them from one place to the other as fast as possible. So they were able to use this special method of holding the chair that allowed them to whisk it away quickly. So the point is that one interpretation is that they were afraid to fall, the other interpret this which is similar to what we said about Yalta. The other interpretation is that it was to be more efficient than a case where it was causing the community uh, a delay having to wait for the rabbi because they were all standing up and waiting like that. Now the, the point is that one of the questions here that actually interesting that Tosfot asks is how can Yalta be an example? Because we already said that in order to be carried on a chair at all, you need to have that the community needs you. And in order to be carried on a chair in one of the special elaborate ways with the the arms folded over the two people or whatever it is, or with the special handles, whatever it is, that has to be done only uh, in uh, unique cases where there's a fear of falling. But why was Yalta allowed to be carried out on a chair to begin with? It was only supposed to be where there was a need for the community. So it says that apparently she must have also ha- there must have also been a need for Yalta, and that's why she was allowed to be carried in the chair to begin with, and even with the elaborate method of carrying, because she was afraid of falling.